my opportunity to say good morning uh, to the Ebenezer family. It's good to be together on this Sunday morning, uh, especially as we gather each week to worship. For those of you who are in the building, it's always good to see your faces. And for those of you who are online, thank you for taking time out of your Sunday morning to join us. My name is Cal. I serve on the staff team here. And it is my privilege to guide us through God's Word this morning on this, the second Sunday of Lent. Now, our Lent series is titled, The Cross. And I love the simplicity of it. While Good Friday and Easter don't often get the same attention as Christmas and Advent does, these dates coming up in just a few short weeks are arguably the most important on the Christian calendar. And the centerpiece of this season is the cross. Last week, Pastor Santos spoke on the centrality of the cross as the cross reveals to us the gravity of our sin the love of God, and the foundation for a new life. And this morning, we are going to take another a look at another vital aspect of the cross, which was simply titled Freedom in the Cross. Pastor Sandosh has prepared a study guide for us as we go through, so if you have not yet picked one up, they should be available on the tables outside on your way out. In 1999, a movie was released that starred Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, and Carrie Ann Moss. Many of you already know the movie I'm referring to as The Matrix. It's hard to believe that that is now coming up to its 25th anniversary. At the time, The Matrix was quite revolutionary in both its special effects and in its concept. Now, getting into all the details, the story centers around this idea that what humans believe to be reality is actually a highly complex construct, a, a matrix, have been built by computers. In the story, some years ago, computers had taken over the world and enslaved human beings uh, um, uh, in, in order to turn them into batteries, is kind of the concept there. In order to keep humans from rebelling, the computers plugged us into this matrix, this alternative reality, so that we would believe we were living life as normal not realizing that, in fact, we are living as slaves to these computers. Keanu Reeves' character, uh, Thomas Anderson, or as he is later known, Neo, exists in this matrix, but he's able to escape when a group of others who have also escaped the matrix find him, believing he is the one who will free all of humanity. You remember the choice that Neo had to make? You take the blue pill or the red pill. If he took the blue pill, he would be returned to the Matrix, wake up in, a, in this alternate reality, not realize anything had happened. But he took the red pill, and the red pill showed the, uh, Neo what the world was really like. Computers had deceived humans into believing that they were living free, when in actuality, they were slaves. Now, our passage this morning is from Galatians chapter 5. And we're going to look, uh, we're going to kind of read through verses 1 to 15 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. If not, we do have the words on the screen behind me. Galatians chapter 5, we begin at verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if, excuse me, that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. 
Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For the Spirit, uh, sorry, for through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would uh, go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law... Excuse me. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by each other. Now, the situation that Paul is writing to here in the region of Galatia is, well, not a good one. The church there, the Christian church, is still quite young, quite new, and therefore somewhat naive in about what this newfound faith in Jesus Christ meant. Paul had had a, a successful ministry in Galatia, and as a result, there were many converts to Christianity. Most of these converts, though, were Gentiles. They were non-Jews. But because of a strong Jewish presence and many who adhered to strict Judaism, these new believers in Jesus were being told and being pressured into believing that their faith in Jesus Christ was not enough for salvation. And they also needed to abide by certain Old Testament rites, especially the practice of circumcision. The Judaizers, the Judaizers argued that Paul was not an authentic apostle and that he was making the message of the gospel more appealing to non-Jews by watering it down and removing some of the, the, the legal requirements. And not so. Paul begins this letter by establishing his apostolic authority and then establishing clearly the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross that fulfills the righteous requirements of the law fully and completely. We are fully justified through the cross. Any addition to this would be a perversion of the gospel of grace and bring followers of Jesus back into the bonds of legalism or slavery. It is God's grace through faith alone that we are justified, and it is by faith alone that we can live out our new life in the freedom of the Spirit. Note the strong language that Paul uses, not just in this passage, but throughout the letter. In this passage, he alone, he says in verse 2, mark my words. In verse 7, he says, who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? In verse 12, it says, as for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. 
See, the issue of freedom in Christ and, uh, and the gospel is an important issue for Paul. And freedom in Christ and freedom in the cross needs to be an important issue for us today. Let's go back to Paul's opening words of chapter 5. Let me read it again, but let me read it from the message. Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. The work of Christ on the cross was, was to set us free and allow us to live a free life. But this begs a question. Why would anyone who was in slavery and has experienced freedom want to ever go back to slavery? Very rarely, if ever, does a criminal voluntarily return to prison. No teenager and you teens in here can vouch for me if this is true, but no teenager, at least to my knowledge, has ever given back the keys to the car and said, Mom and Dad, I want to depend upon you again for my transportation. Many of you know I have four daughters, and none of my girls, none of my girls ever came to Michelle and I and said, Hey, Mom and Dad, I really wouldn't mind having a curfew again. I don't really want to have the freedom to come and go when I want or, or come home when I'm, uh, to not come home when I'm ready. Like, why would anyone having tasted freedom ever want to go back to not being free? Why does Paul have to make this impassioned plea for these Christians to not return to slavery? So for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to examine kind of two key questions. First, what is true freedom? What is true freedom? And second, how does the cross provide this freedom for us? So first, what is true freedom? I think that when it comes to being free or this concept of freedom, we grow up with, and perhaps even now as adults, have a very simplistic and even juvenile understanding of what it means to be free. We often define freedom as this ability to do what we want, when we want. Even the dictionary defines freedom as the power to act or speak or think as one wants to without hindrance or restraint. And so we imply from that that freedom, therefore, must mean, well, there's no rules. There's no restrictions. There's nothing and no one to hold us back or stop us from doing whatever it is we want to do. So freedom for a young child might be, well, I can eat as many cookies as I want or eat as much ice cream as I want whenever I want. For a teenager, again, it might be to stay as, out as late as you want. For adults, it means I can drive as fast as I want. I can show up to work when I want. I can work as hard or as little as I want. And if we think about financial freedom, it means I have the resources to do whatever I want to, whenever I want to. But think about that. Like, think about that. Is that really freedom? Imagine if everyone in this room demanded these as their so-called freedoms. It would be chaos. Our personal worlds would be in chaos. While this kind of simplistic understanding of freedom might be desirable on a personal level, is quite obviously impossible. 
Let's go back to our passage in Galatians 5 and see if we can understand what true biblical freedom is. Let me just read a few of the passages again. Verses 4 to 6. You who are trying to be justified by the law, so now he's addressing those Judaizers who are trying to impose the law back on the Christian church. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. As if for we, so these are now Christ followers, for we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And verse 13 and 14, you, my brothers and sisters, so again, he's addressing now the, the, the church, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. This very letter is addressed to the church or churches in Galatia. And throughout the letter, Paul is making this clear distinction between followers of Jesus and those who are trying to impose these legal requirements to believers based on the Old Testament law. There's always this you and mentality and a we mentality. Paul tells the Galatian church that those trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. So the first aspect of true freedom is this. True freedom is the freedom to be who God created us to be. To be who God created us to be. See, if we go back to the original creation story found in Genesis, there are two key foundational aspects of what it means to be a human being. First, we were created in the image of God. And secondly, we were created to have a relationship with God. If you think about everything else that has been created, even walk through the whole entire creation story, nothing else in all of creation bears the image of God, and nothing else in all of creation is meant to have a relationship with God. God, in his love, created us to carry his image and created us so that we might know him and love him and worship him and serve him. When sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam, that was lost, and it needed to be redeemed. At the core, this is about our identity. It's about who we are. Our identity is in Jesus, because that's who God created us to be. True freedom is the freedom to be who God created us to be. Second, Paul tells us, again, from the passage I just read, that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And he tells us not to use our freedom to indulge in what we want, rather serve one another humbly in love. So the second aspect of true freedom is this. It is the freedom to do what God created us to do. As I just mentioned, we were created to, to know God, to love God, to worship God, and to serve God. And as soon as one other human being was created, in Adam's case, Eve, we were called then to do that, or we were called then to, to extend that goodness to others. We are called to love, um, love others as ourselves, as our, our love our neighbor as yourself. We are called to live according to the ways of God and the ways of Jesus. Indulging in the flesh 
is really pursuing all kinds of human and personal pleasures, pleasures of all kinds. And while the world tells us that that's what freedom allows us to do, the scripture tells us that's not true freedom. True freedom is doing the things that God has called us to do. You know, I think this is one of the, the main tactics of Satan, is that he has deceived us into believing that freedom is the ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want, even if we put the caveat on uh, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. However, that's not true freedom. That's slavery. It's slavery to sin. That's the matrix. True freedom is to be who God created us to be, and the freedom to do what God has created us to do. The second question we need to examine then is this. How does the cross provide us this true freedom? Are there other ways to live and and experience this true freedom? As some might argue that living a so-called good life, a good moral life, might be how we can live free. Follow the moral code and the teachings of Jesus. That's actually the issue being confronted by Paul here. In his day, it was about the Old Testament law. That, in effect, is, is not the way to do it. You see, in our definition of true freedom, the order actually matters, significantly matters. See, we can only do what God called us to do when we be who God calls us to be. The problem in the Galatian church is the same problem we often face today. We do, thinking that that will define who we be. Now, I realize my grammar is terrible right now. Forgive me for that. But my point is this. Too often, we define who we are by what we do. And God wants what we do to come from a deep sense of knowing who we are. It's that expression. God didn't create us to be human doings. He created us to be human beings. To be who we're created to be and to do what we were created to do requires a transformative, supernatural work of God. It's not something we can do for ourselves. It can only be done by God. And it was done for us on the cross. How? First, the cross frees us from the punishment and the penalty of sin. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, every human being born since then, with the exception of Jesus himself, was born into a sinful state. No one is exempt. We are all born sinful. And it is sinfulness that keeps us from being truly free. It is sin that keeps us in the matrix. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned. Not even most. Majority, 50 plus 1, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All fall short of God's glory, or another way to put it would be God's standards of righteousness and holiness. Imagine yourself stuck in a deep well, and this well is filled with mud and guck. It's like quicksand. You're sinking in it, and you know eventually you're going to drown. 
and you try swimming out of the mud. You try grasping at the edges of the well, trying to get any kind of handhold or foothold that'll help you climb out, but every movement only causes you to sink deeper and deeper. That's what it means to be sinful. That would it, that's what it means to be trapped in our own sin. The only way out is if somebody else intervenes. The only way out is if someone who is not caught in the mud comes and helps you out. The only way out is if someone comes to you and extends a rope or a branch or a stick or something that they, you can grab and, and, and pulls you out. If does, someone doesn't come and save you, you're doomed. Well, Jesus Christ, through the cross, did exactly that. Jesus did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. A theological concept here is the term justification, which is the act by which God moves someone, someone who is willing, from the state of sin or unjustness to the state of grace or being just. It's a legal term. Yet this movement from unjust to just requires a payment. It requires a penalty for our sin, for our wrongdoing. And Jesus on the cross paid for it all. He paid for it all. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, and he's speaking about, uh, he's referencing uh, Abraham and how Abraham was credited as righteousness. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 4, 23 to 25. The words it was credited to him, credited to Abraham, were written not for Abraham alone, but also to us whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. See, the cross frees us from the punishment and the penalty of sin. Second, it's through the cross that we become children of God. The cross not only justifies us, but it brings us into right relationship with him. Even though we were all created in the image of God, our sin separates us from him. And it's only through the cross, the completed work of Jesus Christ, that we are adopted by God back into his family. Ephesians 1 verse 5 says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I love the image of adoption because it means he chose us. He chose us. John 1 verses 12 to 13 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. As children of God, we have first and foremost a right relationship with God. But we also have the privileges that come with being a son or daughter of the Almighty Father. As I mentioned, I have four kids, and they enjoy the privileges of being part of the Fong family. They'd have a hard time identifying what those privileges are, but we know and parents know, right? 
but they have the privilege of what it means to be in our family, being in the house, opening the fridge and eating food. You guys could actually come and do that too, but I mean, this is a, a unique privilege. They, they use our vehicles. They, when they are in trouble, you know, we come in and help them. Several years ago, I had uh, one of my daughters got married, and so now I have a son-in-law, and he, same thing, he is now enjoying the same privileges of being part of home. He has his own door code on our front door. That's like the top of the line, right? Right there. Oh, being a child of God is actually the root of our identity. And the cross allows us to be who we were created to be. Over the last several years, I've been in this process of trying to understand the significance of what it really means to be a child of God. I had different things happen in my life that caused me to question my identity and, and how I was defining myself. And early on in the process, I found a little, um, just a little diagram. I should have put it on the screen here. I apologize for that. Um, but it's just, it's a fingerprint and there's words on it and it's centered by the word I am. And I keep this in my journal because every now and then I can take it out and just remind myself of who I am in Christ. In those days that I'm struggling or those days that I'm not doing as well, I just take this out and it reminds me who I am. And one of the key things it says here is I am a child of God. I am forgiven. I am adopted by God. I'm accepted. I am treasured. I am God's workmanship. I am made alive. I am blessed. I am powerful. I'm a masterpiece. This is who we are, and it has nothing to do with what we do. What we do comes out of who we are. Through the cross, we have become children of God. We have a new identity in him, and only through the cross can we live in true freedom. Because it is the cross that frees us from the punishment and the penalty of sin, and it is through the cross that we become children of God. Of God. As we conclude, let me read this. Let me read this powerful passage from Hebrews 12. As the writer of Hebrews encourages believers to run the, the Christian life, to, to run faith with, with perseverance, the author says in Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3 Therefore, since we are surrounded by by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. It sounds like living in slavery, right? And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. For the joy set before him, he, Jesus, endured the cross, scorning its shame. You know, historians today still consider crucifixion on the cross one of the cruelest and most vile ways of execution. It was designed to be slow, very slow, sometimes taking days, and excruciatingly painful. But more than just the physical torture, 
someone being crucified would have experienced. Crucifixion was meant to be humiliating, stripping away the dignity and the self-worth of the one being crucified. The criminal was led through the streets, carrying a portion of the device that was going to kill him. Insults and taunts and sometimes even physical objects were hurled at him. The one being crucified was stripped naked and hung or nailed to the cross. And you can see the shape here, arms outstretched. Nothing could remain hidden. Everyone could see. And for the many hours and days and, and even longer sometimes that they hung there, people would walk by and continue to hurl their taunts and their jeers and their screams and their insults. See, crucifixion wasn't just about killing someone. It was a way of stripping away everything that makes one human. The cross gives us freedom, true freedom. As Jesus hung on that cross, those that were passing by hurled their insults at him. And in Matthew 27, we read this. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. And in the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus was no criminal. Yet he willingly became one so that we could be free. Jesus deserved no humiliation, no shame, no torture. Yet he willingly took it all so we could be free. Jesus willingly gave up his freedom so that we, each of us, you and I, could be free. It's ironic that true freedom only comes when we completely submit ourselves to him. And this morning, I want to invite each of you, whether you're in the building or whether you're watching online, to live in true freedom, freedom that only comes through the cross. Free yourself from the deceptive freedom of Satan and live in the fullness of freedom that Jesus provides. Freedom to be who you were created to be and freedom to do what you were created to do. As we close our service, just a reminder that there'll be those up front here that are ready and willing to pray with you and to pray for you. And if you've never made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and experience and begin a new life of freedom, we encourage you to do that. And that's business between you and God, but we would encourage you to share that with someone. And someone uh, there'll be people up front who'd be happy to hear that journey. 
We've also come and there are other things on your heart or on your mind that you would just simply like prayer for. Please come to the front and we'd be happy to pray for you. I'll invite you to stand as we close and I give us the benediction. And as our benediction this morning, let me just reread that passage from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of Consider him to it who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Well, thank you once again for joining us. Thank you for those who are online who have joined us as well. We encourage you to take time to fellowship and to get to know the people around you by moving to the chapel where there is uh, coffee and some cinnamon buns uh, and things like that to snack on. But once again, thank you for being with us. We look forward to seeing you throughout the week and uh, certainly next Sunday when we gather together again. Have a wonderful week.